0: Production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.
1: And welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Joe Gross, a partner at the law firm of Benesch, Friedlander, Copeland and Arnoff, and president of the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. It's April 30th, and you're with a virtual City Club Forum, live from the City Club. Today is the annual Law Day Forum. President Dwight Eisenhower established the first Law Day in 1958 to mark the nation's commitment to the rule of law. The 2021 Law Day theme, Advancing the Rule of Law Now, reminds all of us that we, the people, share the responsibility to promote the rule of law, defend liberty, and pursue justice. No society can thrive or even continue to exist without the rule of law and respect for institutions of law. The Constitution is the foundation of law in the United States, but its significance is much deeper than simply outlining America's legal structure. The Constitution is symbolic. It is both a codification of our common values and a set of ideals to continue to strive toward. It is a tool of accountability, but perhaps even more, a social contract, a contract that commits Americans to the pursuit of equality, justice, and peace. I am very pleased today to introduce our Law Day speaker, My good friend, Peter Kersenow, he's also my partner at the law firm of Benish, Friedlander, Copeland and Aronoff, where he practices with me in the labor and employment practice area. Mr. Kersenow was recently appointed or reappointed by the Speaker of the House of Representatives to his fourth consecutive six-year term on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He is the longest serving member of the commission. President George W. Bush appointed Mr. Personnel to the National Labor Relations Board in 2006. While serving on the board, he was involved with significant decisions, including Oakwood Healthcare, Dana Metaldyne, Oil Capital Sheet Metal, and Agri-Processors, all of which were cited by Judge Brett Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings. In addition, Mr. Kirsanow testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, John Roberts, Samuel Alito, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan to the Supreme Court, and Jeff Sessions to the position of Attorney General. He continues to testify before and advise members of the U.S. Congress on a variety of matters, most recently before the House Judiciary Committee on the importance of a diverse judiciary. He was one of two principal witnesses to testify on the 2013 immigration reform bill. Mr. Kirstenow is the author of thriller novels, Target Omega, Second Strike, and soon to be released Black Russian. He is a graduate of Cornell University and our Cleveland Marshall College of Law, where he has been an adjunct professor of employment law. Today, Mr. Kersenow will talk with City Club CEO Dan Multhrup about the fundamental intersections between law and democracy. If you have questions for Mr. Kersenow, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them to at the City Club. We'll do our best to work them in. With that, I turn the forum over to you, Mr. Malthrop. Thank you
2: very much, Mr. Cross. It's really good to see you. Thank you also to the, uh, your colleagues at the Cleveland Metro Bar Association for your partnership. And Peter now welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Great to see you again.
0: Thanks, Dan, I'm thrilled to be back at the City Club. This is a hallowed institution. I've been here before, and it's always a pleasure.
2: Well, it's nice to have you here as part of our forum, but also especially nice to have you on the stage. It's nice to enjoy these little, these, these little things we can do once we've right. been vaccinated. Um, so the rule of law, the, the advancing the rule of law is the Bar Association's theme for Law Day this year. But it's, and it's not just a theme, though. It is really what America's been about uh, since our founding. But how, how do you see it right now? How is, what's the state of the rule of law today?
0: Yeah, I think the rule of law is robust but it's under considerable stress. It's been under stress for quite some time. It comes from a variety of of places. Mainly it's political stress. That's not anything unusual. That's been the case throughout our history. I think, however, there's a different element to this, and it's difficult to quantify the the strength of that element or the quality of that element, but there's an advancing tendency, I think, to derogate certain aspects of the rule of law. Again, I, I do think that there are robust protections against uh, the subversion of the rule of law, but we're seeing a lot of political strain on the rule of law, and it comes from all sides of the political spectrum. Um, That's something that needs to be guarded against. I think at the local level, the bar associations, individual attorneys can do their part to protect the rule of law. If you take a look at what the ABA's principles with respect to the rule of law are, as long as we adhere to those those principles with respect to, you know, equal treatment under the law, making sure the law is clear, equally mm-hmm. applicable to everybody, and that we're not taking liberties with the founding principles of the country. I don't think that, you know, the, the majority of people are, but there seems to be a greater political stress on those founding principles and Let we me, need to recapture them.
2: You said earlier uh, that, you know, it's coming from both sides of the political spectrum. Talk about what you see specifically. What are some examples of, of the, the, the attacks that you see?
0: Well, there are certain things that we've seen throughout history. I mean, there's, there are certain things that are not anomalous. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is, this kind of thing has always tested our system. But, you know, if you take a look at going back to even 20-plus years ago, some of our associates probably don't even remember this, Bush versus Gore, okay? Ah, yes. um, I think that a lot of strain was placed on the system. You know, I think it was Lord Bingham in, in England was talking about how, to some extent, when you have big political players involved in testing something as important as the outcome of a presidential election, it can sometimes devolve into, the rule of law can devolve into hooray for our side, as he put it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you look at what uh, is being advocated by the various counsel on either side, sometimes by what certain judges do, uh, you, you get the sense that they're not looking at the rule of law objectively, that they're trying to get, I mean, we're always going to be zealous advocates for our position, but when you start taking liberties with what the plain language of the law is, when you start curbing certain aspects of the law, I think that's, that can be, it's not just troubling, it can be dangerous. But, you know, um, the United States is, I think, well-grounded in our traditions with respect to the rule of law, and, you know, we survive. Right now, we're seeing a lot of stress under the rule of law. I mean, we've seen, you know, political tensions over the last, say, four or five years that have been at a level that I can't recall in my lifetime and I'm an old man. Um, so the,
2: the, I mean, a lot of people listening right now are thinking, uh, you know, that these last six months, Dem- you know, there were some considerable uh, stresses, politically yeah. generated stresses to our nation's commitment to rule of law, and in particular the, to our nation's commitment to the rule of election law yeah. and free and fair elections. Um, there's something different About this last year, because the challenge to what was fundamentally um, understood as the outcome of a free and fair election, which is kind of with, you know, part of the rule of law, those challenges were coming from the White House itself.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. And you've got to be careful when you have to understand who the players are and how big and powerful they are. Mm -hmm. Large institutions, I think, have a special obligation to be very careful, no sudden movements, okay? (laughs) Um, No lurches and things of that nature because it can disrupt the polity significantly. Even if you are using the instrumentalities of the law, you're using the processes of the law, when you are pitting major elements of society against one another, again, you may be utilizing the rule of law, you have to be very careful that you're scrupulously adhering to what the stated law is. Uh, The Supreme Court, for example, dismissed a number of appeals. Uh, Some courts wouldn't hear certain things. Uh, You you can come to your own conclusions as to whether or not that was the right adjudication or not, or whether or not there was a political uh, component to that. But when there's a political component, the problem is, If, for example, if say a President Trump files an action or advocates on his behalf file an action and there's a belief that that's being done without any grounding in what the actual factual disputes are, that can derogate the rule of law. If you think that a court is making a determination not on the basis of the law and the evidence but because of a political component, that can derogate the rule of law and that's incredibly important because small erosions can have a way of snowballing. There can be a domino effect. How
2: do you see it? Do you see? Do you think that the courts were making uh, conclusions not based on fact, or do you think that the cases were brought to the courts not based on fact? Well, I think I'm those not are sure. the two kind of possibilities of times, you just outlined.
0: Right. I'm not sure that too much, too many of the facts were ever introduced into evidence. A lot of this was appeals just based on the law. Okay. Not with respect to the facts underlying it. For example, uh, the the uh, Pennsylvania case where I don't think the, the facts were ever adjudicated. The Supreme Court declined to take on certain cases, so they weren't looking at the um, the law itself, they were, uh, the, the law as applicable to it, they were looking at as to whether or not there was a jurisdictional base for undertaking these appeals. Mm-hmm. And you can have arguments on both sides. We saw that you know uh, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas disagreed with the majority, so on and so forth. But as long as we have advocates who are adhering to the rule of law and there's faith in this being done in an impartial fashion, that's fine. When political actors on either side, doesn't matter Mm -hmm. who they are, when political actors start, you know, kind of tweaking things and trying to uh, goose the outcome, that can undermine confidence in the system and that has a snowball effect.
2: Yeah, I think also connected to that is when when advocates are saying one thing in public and another thing in court. As we know, Rudolph Giuliani, for instance, was frequently referring to fraud and you know, uh, claiming that there was a voter fraud. But in court, he said, no, there's, this isn't a fraud case.
0: Going back to what I said before, you've got to be very careful about not undermining faith in the rule of law, faith in our institutions. Yeah. You know, the ABA has several different principles that um, um, it uses to define the rule of law and protect the integrity of the rule of law. And, I mean, there's a host of reasons, and and most of them are grounded in our founding documents. But you have to be clear about what the law is. You can't distort what the law is. There has to be a a common understanding that everyone is under the same set of laws, equal treatment of the laws. Mm -hmm. And when you start to, when people start to suspect that anybody, especially powerful players, Mm -hmm. are trying to derogate the rule of law or are being treated differently better or worse than someone else, then confidence in the system starts to wane and that can have, a, as I said, it, it has a domino effect that can be troubling.
2: That's where your work on the Civil Rights Commission really comes into play, isn't it? When people feel as if they are being treated differently under the law.
0: Right, all the time. Equal protection is one of the ABA principles. It, you know, it's a hallowed principle throughout our Anglo-American jurisprudence. And that's what we see. And you know, I've got, in, in about 45 minutes or so, I've got to get back to actually chair a meeting of the Civil Rights Commission.
2: And the, I think on the agenda is cash bail.
0: Um, there is, you, you've been reading up on our agenda. Boy, that's, <laughs> that's impressive. It's one of the things that we're taking a look at. Um, there are a whole host of things. Every single meeting, we're dealing with Matters relating to the, the rule so of law.
2: I want to pursue the cash bail thing for a second, if sure. we could, um, and uh, because it's it's a matter that is front and center in front of our community right now. You're aware of the the existence of the bail project in our community that is um, seeking to uh, disrupt the the cash bail system and provide bail to those who can't pay and are not a flight risk. Mm-hmm. And it is really the the goal of that of that project is to demonstrate that um, that essentially cash bail may not be necessary in order for the functioning of our courts. When you and the Civil Rights Commissioner are looking at this issue, what are you looking for? What are you trying to determine?
0: Fairness, number one. We had uh, a hearing just a few weeks ago on this and we had a whole host of witnesses, including former Chief Bratton of New York. It was really interesting. People had different perspectives um... and cash bail varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction so i don't think there's some
2: jurisdictions in america where you still have to pay cash bail in cash
0: Right, and there are there's there's an effort underway right now to completely eliminate the notion of cash bail the theory being that it has a disparate impact obviously it's going to have a disparate impact against poor people which then of course has a disparate impact on communities of color um... whether or not that rises to a level of a constitutional violation is a whole separate inquiry Whether or not cash bail is a good idea is separate from that, okay? There's the law, and then whether or not the utilitarian aspect of cash bail serves the instruments of the United States generally, or or our Mm -hmm. citizens. And there is conflicting testimony with respect to that. Um, In certain jurisdictions where they've either eliminated cash bail or reformed it, we've seen an increase in flight, we've seen an increase in crime. In other places, we've seen something different. So I don't want to prejudge where we're going to be going with this thing, and we're going Mm -hmm. to be talking about that, but uh, it's one of the things that we look at the Civil Rights Commission to ensure that we have equal treatment of the law. One of the pillars that the ABA talked about in terms of preserving the rule of law and people's confidence in the rule of law. For much of the United States history, uh, blacks were very suspicious of the rule of law because it was being applied in an unequal fashion in many ways in a way to hurt black people for a long period of time. Um, That kind of thing can affect confidence, not just in the rule of law, but whether or not you're going to adhere to or obey the law. If Mm -hmm. you think that the law is unjust or it's being applied in an unjust fashion, what incentive do you have to comply with it? On the other hand, what we've had is just in the last few years, this kind of notion that well, it's kind of almost kind of a legal reparations that if you are black, um, you have greater latitude in terms of whether or not you're going to adhere to the rule of law. Um, We see this with Where do you see that? Whoa, I see it everywhere, all over the place. All I have to do is turn on your television and see, um, especially in places like Chicago, New York, and other places, the calls for abolition of the police, abolition of the police, or defunding the police. Well, but that's different. The police.
2: That's that, uh, police reform is different from from what you just said. I mean, you just said that. What I think I heard you say was that um, you've seen black people who feel that the that the law doesn't apply to them. No, what okay. I see, sorry, it, I then, then I, No,
0: then I mis- misstated it. What I see is an effort to claim that blacks or those who are nominally or allegedly oppressed have greater latitude. They don't have to, for example, with respect to um, uh, some of the riots we've seen, not just the BLM riots of George Floyd, but even predating that. There was the famous statement from the mayor of, of uh, uh, Baltimore talking about giving people space in which to destroy. There is a different standard of being applied right now than to anybody <clears throat> back say even five, six, seven years ago. It's, it's peculiar. You cannot say, for example, that well, it's justified for people to riot, to destroy, to do things, because the reason for it may be justified.
2: Let me ask you, though, uh, just in Washington, D.C., um, there were the Black Lives Matter protests that um, at one point were met with a helicopter force. Black Hawk helicopters were circling overhead and, 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 and coming down to, to disrupt protests, peaceful protests. And then, not a mile away from that, on January 6th, we know what kind of police, you know, police uh, use of force met the insurrectionists. It was very little use of force.
0: Somebody was killed.
2: Somebody was killed, but there was very little. Yeah. There was it was a disproportionate use of force.
0: That's because no, they weren't prepared. There was nobody in the Capitol building. The Capitol police force asked for protection. Well, I mean, there's supplied. there's a lot
2: of other examples that people. Let me let yeah. me ask you this. So, um, for instance. Uh, Use of force against protesters, as we've we we've, we've been discussing, and then there are the um, the there was the the shooting Dylan Roof, the um, who was accused uh, of of killing several people inside of a church, and there was very little force used in his arrest. Similarly, the um, the seventeen I think it was a seventeen year old armed uh, um, uh, armed counter protester who shot and killed a protester who was, you know, there was very little use of force in his arrest. Um, so some people would say that it's, that it's not so much that, that black people or Black Lives Matter protesters are being given a, a free reign or, you know, have more latitude in their protests, but that in fact it's whites who, have, who are not treated the same by police.
0: Yeah. No one, nobody should be treated differently on the basis of race. That's one of the reasons I'm on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing that more and more often, regardless if it's white or black, we are seeing differentials in enforcement on the basis of race. We see that quite commonly. You saw that over the summer, and I know that the the general kind of zeitgeist is that, well, you know, these were peaceful protests. Peaceful protests don't result in billions of dollars in property damage, don't result in several dozen people being killed, they don't result in 700 cops being assaulted or hurt. Those are not peaceful protests. To the extent they were peaceful protests, we champion that. But you can't say that what we saw, I remember distinctly one news commentator standing in front of burning buildings and saying these are mostly peaceful protests. We have to call it what it is regardless of the race of the perpetrator. And to the extent we start giving people passes or excuses, regardless of whether it's the media But more importantly, the justice system, and thank goodness, I don't think thus far the justice system to any large degree has given anybody passes on destruction of property or commission of crimes. But if there's a sense that that is beginning to occur, we are in a very big world of hurt.
2: Do you think that, um, you know, when I think just here in the city of Cleveland about um, the police violence that has occurred, Officer-involved shootings, whatever term you want to use, whether, um, but, but when we think about the lives lost, the people, children like Tamir Rice, mm-hmm. or adults Melissa Williams, Timothy Russell, who whose car was shot 137 times, um, probably I think that's now almost 10 years ago. Um, and the fact that in those two cases, uh, not to mention others, that there hasn't been a perceived accountability, rule of law mm-hmm. equally applied. Um, do you think that's a problem for, do you think that contributes to this notion that um, that people are frustrated by, um, sure. by it, rule of law conti- and in particular to police who, are, who yeah. are nominally supposed to enforce rule of law?
0: Yeah, that definitely contributes. And there's no way in the world we should be countenancing any kind of difference in in treatment, any kind of disparate treatment. But I will tell you that in my experience in the Civil Rights Commission, what's contributing greatly to the, the discord that we're seeing is a false narrative also. You mentioned Tamir Rice, tragic circumstance. There are other tragic circumstances out there that we can look to. When you look at right now what's propelling much of the unrest that we saw especially last summer after the George Floyd incident was a false narrative from much of the media. That is, if this were perceived to be, if police misconduct was perceived to be isolated, um, I doubt that you would see $40 billion in property damage or scores of people being killed or you know all, all kinds of people be, uh, cops being assaulted. But what's being perpetuated, I think right now, if you asked people who are listening right now, they believe, in fact, a poll was done, asking people how many blacks, for example, are killed each year by cops. And a significant cohort, I think it was 34%, believed 1,000 or more were killed by cops each year. In fact, there was a significant percentage that I thought up to 10,000 were. Mm -hmm. In any given year, approximately 11 to 12 blacks are killed by cops nationwide okay, it's actually a lower percentage than for whites when you take into consideration involvement in crime. Actually a lower percentage. One of the reasons for that is... But involvement
2: is, in crime, if I may, yeah. if, if I may just push back a little bit, um, involvement in crime is going to be skewed. This is like sort of a Heisenberg principle, right? If you look for it, you're going to find it. So if communities of color are over-policed or policed disproportionately, then they're going to find more crime right? The police, police, they're trained to find crime, they're gonna find crime in the places that they're policing. So if they're policing communities of color more, then you will have a higher rate of contributing to what you're saying.
0: You're exactly right about that, except here's the thing. Again, another false narrative. For the last 40 years, I've lived in the same place, in the city of Cleveland on the east side. Mm -hmm. um, All black neighborhood. If you go to community meetings there, you see a completely different narrative than what you see out on the streets what you see at those community meetings are people who are usually over the age of 30. They may be property owners, they have jobs, and you will not find one person there who says, I want fewer police. Mm -hmm. Not one. They Mm -hmm. want more police. They're asking, where are the police? And the reason for that is, again, you talk about, you know, that's where you go. Well, who was it, Willie Sutton, I think it was. They asked him, you know, why do you rob banks? He says, that's where the money is, is, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, for whatever reason it is, In black communities, there are vastly higher crime rates. It's not a little bit, it's vastly higher. Every day I hear gunshots, every night in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Do I want fewer police or more police? Do I think fewer police will be better? Do I think that having fewer police will lower the number of gunshots? Do you think that somehow police are propelling or compelling people to fire guns? No, there happens to be some bad actors. Now there are all kinds of social and economic reasons for that, we can Mm -hmm. address that but the urgency of making sure that we have well-policed communities does not detract from the fact that you know we need to be sure not to perpetuate a false narrative that encourages people to disrespect the law and right now what we've got are a false narrative that makes it seem as if cops are out there gunning down people with impunity it happens on occasion every single time it happens it's bad news But again, it's not, when you look at the stats, and I've looked at them, we have these stats at the Civil Rights Commission. When you take an honest look at the stats, don't listen to political propaganda or anything else, misrepresentations. Whites, on on a basis of committing crime versus committing crime, are actually shot at a slightly higher level than blacks. Bottom line is, while we don't excuse any kind of tragedy, such as Tamir Rice, It is not what, it's not 10,000 people aren't being killed. And it's unlike, it's very, very uncommon where someone who is completely innocent is killed. We're not justifying this, but that false narrative is perpetuating a disrespect for the rule of law that's unjustified.
2: Why do you think the law is not equally applied to police? In what respect? I mean, with respect to Tamir Rice and um, or or Timothy Russell, or Melissa Williams, or um, Tanisha Anderson?
0: I'm not sure that's not equally applied to police. You can f- cite anomalies in certain cases where you can say, well, that person's not treating the same as this person, but it could apply to police, firefighters, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, all over the place. And that's what I see at the Civil Rights Commission. It's not a function of, our police given a pass? What I see are, police are held to an extremely high standard. I see. I, I am amazed that anyone today would want to be a police officer. They are being subjected to all manner of abuse. They're presumed to be racist, even though significant portions or cohorts within every municipal police department are cops of color. Uh, they are paid very low if they, make very, if they make decisions, such we saw down in Columbus. The police officer who shot, I don't remember her name, Mikia, I don't remember her Mikia name, Brian. shot her, right, um, in a split second, There was 11 seconds elapsed between the time he exits his vehicle until the time he's being shot. You had individuals say, well, people are going to engage in knife fights all the time. He should not have shot her. Or they all think he's dirty hairy and should have shot her in the leg. That is not just irresponsible. That's insane. A black person was saved because of that. And yet we have people arguing that somehow this guy's a bad guy. Cops are in a position that I'm not in. I get to sit in my office, air conditioned. I don't have to make a split second decision that's life or death. I usually get time to research. I usually Mm -hmm. get time to talk to associates. Most professions are like that. I think cops, there are bad cops out there. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of bad cops are are pretty dire. It's like having a bad neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, the vast majority of cops are doing a great job and they're being subject to a false narrative that's hurting our entire society and it's being done sometimes for political advantage. That's wrong, and it derogates the rule of law and respect for the rule of law.
2: I've been so engaged in this conversation, I forgot to remind our listeners that um, you are Peter Kirstenow of the Civil Rights Commission of the, U- of the United States, and uh, you're listening to the City Club Friday don't Forum. Remember,
0: don't forget to tell me about my Medal of Honor and the Heisman Trophy.
2: He's <laughs> got a Medal of Honor and a Heisman Trophy. <laughs> um, and uh, he's also a partner at Benish, and today is our Law Day Forum, uh, presented in partnership with the Cleveland Metro Bar Association. If you have a question for Peter Kirstenow, you should text it to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 That's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 You can also tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. Peter, as we get to uh, questions from our audience, what do you think the solution is?
0: Oh, I think the solution is pretty straightforward. I think honesty is important. I think being well-informed is important, and I think when you are engaged in something as important as enforcing the law, adjudicating the law, you have to adhere to the law, and you don't play favorites. This is the ABA's you know, standards we're talking about, that everybody is equally subject to the application of the rule of law. The rule of law is clear. And you know, there's as little vagary about it as possible so the common man understands it and doesn't have to be interpreted by Supreme Court justice. Do you truly
2: believe that the um, prosecutors and courts don't play favorites when it comes to uh, moments where uh, in officer-involved shootings?
0: They might, they might. And then sometimes they, they play disfavorites. Um, so the concerns that we have are because of the nature of our political discourse now that uh, I think most prosecutors, 99.9 percent of them, are trying to do the best they can under sometimes very difficult circumstances. Are there bad apples? Sure there are. I don't know that in today's climate, say in the last um, at least seven to eight years, at least since the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, that you see prosecutors who are favoring cops in large measure. I don't see that. Now they deal with cops on a regular basis and there may, may be some affinity. They may even know some of the cops. I remember 40 years ago when I was doing labor work for the city of Cleveland, you did see some favoritism toward cops, okay? But now I see really kind of the opposite in many precincts where cops are subjected to levels of scrutiny from not just local prosecutors but after the local prosecution has an opportunity to um, uh, go after the cops, for example, for you know shooting. You've got the federal government coming in. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. The federal government should be doing that, but sometimes it appears as if it's punitive, almost kind of a double jeopardy type of situation. So I think that in 2021, I don't think that you've got, again, we've got this vision that everything is 1965 Selma, Alabama. Um, I'm old enough to remember Selma, Alabama. I actually know people who are at Selma, Alabama. We have made a significant advancement since Selma that a lot of people deride and don't want to acknowledge. Do we have work to do? That's why I'm on the Civil Rights Commission. Yes, we do. But the narrative I was talking about seems to suggest, for example, that we have systemic racism in this country. That's one of the biggest lies imaginable. Systemic racism, and when you point to the areas where we have the systemic racism, I'll tell you where the systemic racism is. I can point to it, exactly. First of all, Um, We have an enormous and elaborate system, imperfect, but an enormous and elaborate system to make sure that everybody is treated fairly under the law. In a nation of 330 million people, you're going to get unfairness without question, and we should work diligently to eliminate that. But if you take a look at the systems, we have a multi-billion dollar apparatus to make sure that the systems are fair, honest, and free from racism or any other kind of ism. You've got, for example, the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education. You've got state oh, oh. and local comparatives. You've got, you've got human rights commissions. You know, EEOC. You've got the 1981 Civil Rights Act, 1983 Civil Rights Act, 1964 Civil Rights but, Act. But you've hold been hold on a second, Peter now,
2: Hold on a second. Let me just interrupt because I want to just bring us back to where we started with the conversation, which I think you you said that the cash bail system unfairly impacts communities of color because could. they're also it could do so. Yes and that's a system, and if it's unfairly having an, a disproportionate impact on a certain community, on black and brown people, sure. that's what, I think that's what, when people say that there's systemic racism in our country, that's the sort of thing they're pointing Remember to. Remember
0: this, also, gotta be careful. Yes, there could be, but I would tell you this, and we haven't completely researched that at the Civil Rights Commission, but we are equating disparity with racism. There's this movement abroad, or intellectual movement abroad. I don't think we are. I think we are, I think we are. There's this theological almost perception that disparity equals racism or intentional discrimination. Critical race theory is abroad in the land right now. It's almost every institution, it's being taught K through 12 colleges through, through, uh, there was just a proposed notice of rulemaking from the administration, where they're going to give priority funding to teaching of critical race theory. Uh-huh. Under critical race theory, this presumption is that the United States' founding was was racist, and therefore all the systems and institutions thereunder are necessarily racist. I can't think of anything more pernicious to the national psyche than, than a belief that that's in fact the well, case. Well, wait a second. Wait. But in wait. terms of systemic racism,
2: but the th- but the basic facts are that you know the the United States was founded with slavery as, like, yep. as, as part of that. Slavery was a racist institution. Yep. And, that, and I think that's all that people mean when they say that, that racism was at the heart we, of we, our we, nation's founding.
0: I, I would have to disagree with that. You have to take a look at the 1619 project promulgated by the New York Times. That's not all they're saying. Critical race theory posits. Take a look at the, the greatest proponents of critical race theory, the professors who propose it. You could look at uh, you know Kendi and D'Angelo and others. It's that because the the founding of the country was tainted by slavery and racism mm-hmm. that is almost indelible now in other words it necessarily is propagated throughout our systems now our judicial system law enforcement uh, is necessarily racist anything or almost anything that results in a disparity is presumed to be caused by racism and that's a, a dangerous way of looking at things look at k through 12 instruction right now where people are being instructed white kids are being instructed that somehow you are privileged and part of an oppressor class whereas others aren't we're also lowering standards so that we don't have disparities presuming that these these disparities are necessarily the result of slavery or anything else or systemic systems that the law is in fact systemically racist there are certain systems that perpetuate disparities we are eliminating them we're not successful in doing so But if you take a look at the systemic discrimination, actual systemic racial discrimination in this country, most go in a certain direction. One of the most most prominent ones is featured in Harvard versus Students for Fair Admissions, the case before the Supreme Court right now. Almost every institution, academic institution in this country, actively discriminates against Asian Americans, and unfortunately, our elites are saying absolutely nothing about it. At Harvard, the evidence adduced, for example, is that an Asian-American is 10 times less likely to be admitted, or over, over a similarly situated white or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, black or Hispanic comparative. However, that's actually kind of, kind of low, because at other institutions, you are four to 500 times more likely to be admitted than if you're black or Hispanic, then you're similarly situated, same grade point average, same SAT, come from the same place in the country, same uh, extracurriculars, than, than somebody of another race. That's where much of the systemic racism comes from. Some of our most elite institutions are engaged in what used to be called reverse racism. When you do that, especially at that level, especially at, say, a Harvard or in law schools, Mm -hmm. where we're teaching law students that, that is extremely dangerous. We've, We've not had that before. We're at a different juncture right now. Not only do we have that in our institutions, law schools, places like that, About three weeks ago, I testified before the House Judiciary Committee, as I think Joe just said, Mm -hmm. on the importance of diversity. Now, I testify on a fairly frequent basis. And frankly, I didn't have any particular brief in testifying there. But what struck me was the importance of diversity in the federal judiciary. I think it's important, okay? But a lot of it's depending upon how you get there. It struck me that among all the witnesses, I was the only one who said we should not be making judicial decisions on the basis of race. You had people exhorting Congress to make judicial appointments on the basis of race. When you start doing things like that, race is probably the most volatile issue in the nation's history. And when you start making determinations on that basis in terms of who's going to be adjudicating the law, it was horrible when it occurred during Jim Crow and before. It's no less horrible now. It undermines faith in the, in, the, in the judicial process and when you do that, if you don't believe in the judicial process, you're going to be less likely to adhere to the law.
2: Peter now is our guest at your City Club Friday Forum. We're very grateful that he's here for a long form sort of uh, moment here because um, this wouldn't fit into a soundbite soundbite at all. Um, we're going to go to questions. We've delayed questions from our audience long enough. Um, What other agenda items besides cash bail are in front of the Commission on Civil Rights right now? Oh,
0: boy, we've got, we have so many, it's ridiculous. Um, But we, almost everything you can think about, uh, vaccinations in Indian country, for example, um, we're dealing with um, sub-minimum wage issues. There's a, one of the more intriguing ones is whether or not the uh, section, I think it's 17C, um, of the Fair Labor Standards Act that allows for the payment of sub-minimum wages should be abolished. Maybe it's 15C. I should know this, but I apologize. Um, that's been used, for example, to allow employers to hire individuals with disabilities, and if we eliminate that, a lot of these people won't have jobs. The reason why people say it should be eliminated, there's a lot of reasons why people say it, is because it treats certain individuals um, less favorably than others and the question really amounts to is that does that overcome the need to get people employed because otherwise these people wouldn't be employed and we had considerable amount of testimony from parents caregivers custodians of individuals who are mentally challenged for example or physically challenged who say they wouldn't get a job if they had to compete on uh, for a job at the minimum wage or above so we're looking at that I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be you know we're going to be writing a report on that Uh, But virtually anything you can think of that is a hot-button item today. I I used to say this, Dan. If you want to know where the nation is going in, say, 10 to 15 years, come to a Civil Rights Commission hearing today because Mm -hmm. things you have not heard about in public discourse, we talk about on a regular basis at the Civil Rights Commission well before it escapes out into the ether among normal people. Mm -hmm.
2: Last year, the commission was also involved in... in, uh, Pressuring and putting a little bit of pressure on the government to work through the naturalization backlog.
0: Yeah, yeah. How's that going? Uh, well, <laughs> there, that is a multifaceted, a lot of working parts there. Okay? Yeah. Um, immigration is a gigantic issue, and there's, you know, I think advocates on so many different sides. You've got the business community that takes a certain view of things, you've got, you know, the advocate community that takes a certain view of things, but uh, Right now, you can see, this is a big issue. I testified in 2013 for the, uh, with respect to the Gang of Eight bill. I, re- I remember I was only one of two principal witnesses to testify. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got to testify on it.
2: Because you're Peter Kirst now.
0: Uh, because you know my Heisman Trophy and my Medal of Honor, of course. <laughs> um, but this is one of the major issues of the day. Uh, yes. It currently is a major issue. You've got in, in so many, as I said, working or moving parts. You have got the business community that, that needs an influx of talent and it's saying that we don't have talent domestically to fill that need, or at least immediately. So, there's concerns with respect to H-1B, H-2B visas. There's the illegal immigration issue. There are, for example, one of the the issues that we've got, and one of the issues that um, was brought up during the 2013 hearing, then 2015 hearing, there's so many different immigration hearings, is that illegal immigration has um, unexpected deleterious effects on the current domestic population. And the most deleterious effect, we had a hearing on this before the Civil Rights Commission, is on black Americans, because illegal immigrants happen to be a cohort that uh, competes with black Americans in some of the same labor markets as traditional traditional labor markets inhabited by black Americans. Uh, George Borjas of Harvard, for example, tried to quantify it, and said that in the last 25 years or so, nearly one million blacks are without jobs because of com- competition from legal immigration. The reason for that is because legal immigrants, among other things, they, you know, many of them are hard working and good employees. They also have the benefit of not necessarily complaining about the jobs, and I'm, I'm, I'm pinning with a broad brush, but they're not going to be necessarily going to the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor, or the EEOC, or any other places, or OSHA, if they think their working conditions are substandard. So, um, It also depresses the wages of current employees. Uh, So that's something we're trying to get our hand. It's it's a complex issue. And we're trying to get our arms around it. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do it. It's been discussed for the last 40 years in an intense fashion. A lot of pieces of legislation have been proposed. We're talking about omnibus immigration bills. I'm not sure an omnibus bill is going to go anywhere. Maybe it should be done in small parts. That's my own view. but um, Where would you start? That's a very good question. Um, I think where you start is figuring out what we want in terms of immigration. What do we want? What is our objective? Nobody has that discussion. Is the objection to benefit the American people or to benefit immigrants? All right? Now, we do have certain asylum policies, but that's a very narrow sliver of the whole immigration debate. What do we want to accomplish out of the whole thing? Once we get that, then we can decide, okay, then what's the level of immigration that will get us to that point? We're not having these discussions. You go to Congress, they're only talking about, we're going to give amnesty to everybody. You know, we got the Dreamers, we got this, we got that. It's a very almost infantile discussion, and it's being done on political imperatives, as almost everything is, of course, in Washington. But it's not necessarily done with an eye toward what benefits the American people first. In my estimation, that should be the first inquiry. Then, once you have that luxury solved, then you start dealing with things such as, okay, what benefits asylum seekers? Mm
2: Speaking of political imperatives, this question from a, a fellow Cornell alum, can you speak more to the idea of packing the court and what complications it can have to the justices?
0: We saw that in the 19... Uh,
2: By the use of the word justices, I assume they're talking about the Supreme Court and not yeah. the, the federal courts more broadly.
0: Right. Well, uh, well, justices are on the Supreme Court. Um, we saw an effort to pack the court during Roosevelt. We're all familiar with that. Uh, the The... My concern, I'm not speaking for the commission, none of, it, none of what I've said is speaking for the packing commission. Packing
2: the court is also referred to as expansion of the court.
0: Yeah, also referred to as expansion of the court, and the question is why? You know, it's served us for the last number of years, uh, decades now. Why are we packing it now? Is it too much work to be done by nine justices? Is there, what's, the political, what's, what's the judicial imperative, what's the law imperative in, quote-unquote, expanding or packing the court? When you start talking like that, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a libertarian, if you're a conservative, if you're a liberal, if you're a progressive. When you start talking about tinkering with the number of people on the court, it starts to beg the question as, what, what are your true motivations? And when you start to question what the motivations are, I think it starts to affect people's perceptions of the impartiality of the court, whether or not they're deciding cases based on the law as written, mm-hmm. Or whether or not there are political issues that may be affecting it. I'm, so, we I'm, didn't
2: really have, there's not a lot of guesswork involved in wondering if there were political issues with, um, in the way that Mitch McConnell handled Supreme Court justice appointments, right? Like, he was very clear that it was a political process that he was going to make the most of in to favor the yes. Republican Party.
0: Shocked again, there's gambling going on in the casino, right? Right, yeah. Well, but, that happens all across the board. Yeah. But expanding the court is of different genus than whether or not a nominee is gonna get through after the expiration of a particular term. I mean, everybody has done something like that, and it's within the confines of the existing law. Well, so, now, is, but, so is, expansion of, so is expansion of the court. So is expansion of the court. The question is, why are we doing that? Why are we, for example, why expand it to, right now the discussion is to 13? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why, why not 12? Why not 11? If you wanna have that debate, that's fine, but I'm still waiting for why is it that we're expanding the court? If the perception among the people is that the reason for the expansion of the court, or the principal reason for the expansion of the court is for a political imperative, that is going to derogate people's confidence in the impartiality of the court. And do, you that, think, do you
2: think that was the case with Mitch McConnell and his treatment of the Supreme Court appointments? It
0: could be, it could be. I don't think it was. I, I think, look, power politics is going to happen no matter what, mm-hmm. all right? But if there was, I think there was a perception that McConnell was playing politics, and I don't think that helps. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it helps. That's the perception. Whether mm-hmm. that perception is justified or not, that's another inquiry. But in this one, this is radically different than one seat. We always have one vacancy, and we've always been talking about nine seats. Now we're talking to thirteen, and no one's been able to posit precisely why it is that now we need thirteen in 2021. All of a sudden, now we need two, uh, 2000. If if we think that that's being driven largely because we want a desired judicial outcome, that's a real problem.
2: Again, we're talking with Peter Kirsten now. He's, on the, he's a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. If you have a question for him on this Law Day Forum about the rule of law, democracy, or any of the topics we've been discussing, you can text your question to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 or tweet it at the city club and we'll work it in.
0: Also ask why I haven't been drafted by the Cleveland Browns. The Browns yeah. should know that they should draft me just for one play.
2: Just one play? They won't regret it. One play, which position would you?
0: Wide receiver. I'm not an idiot. I'm in my sixties. I just run an out pattern, so I'd be going toward the sidelines.
2: Okay. And, so in, and and you would catch it? I'd catch it. i make sure I'd catch it, I'd catch sure I'd it. Catch it and yeah. then I'm going for out the bounds. For the first down. Right. Okay, For a first down. Okay. Um, how do you explain the fact that history taught in high school eliminates much of the suffering of people under Jim Crow? I receive daily emails from the Equal Justice Initiative, that's brian Stevenson's uh, organization, about discriminatory acts I've never heard of against individuals and whole communities, such as Tulsa.
0: Tulsa, a good example. Um, you know, my wife's relatives, for example, were affected by the Tulsa riots back in the 1920s. Most people aren't aware of it. Okay. Um, I go into schools, and in fact, I've had you know the privilege of being able to teach certain courses, history and, and con law, and I'm distressed. I think we, we try to do, a lot of people try to do the best. I don't want to paint a broad brush. I think we've got phenomenal teachers. I think we have a lot of engaged individuals who really are interested in making sure that we teach our kids well. Uh, unfortunately, I think that we're not doing a good job of it. Um, and it's across the spectrum, whether or not, you know, uh, not teaching uh, history with respect to discrimination, or whether or not it's teaching math appropriately. Um, I do think, however, that, that first of all, as a baseline, there's significant room for improvement. When I look at texts, I don't see a failure to teach discrimination, I actually see a concentration on that. Is that a bad thing? Um, It depends on how it's instructed. If the notion is that, as I said before, with critical race training and the 1619 Project, if the idea is America is an awful country, America is a racist country, America is systemically racist, those are provably false. Did we have a racist beginning? Is there racism in this country in a nation of 330 million now? Of course there is. But to, sustain, but to claim that the United States operates on the basis of race, that it's the principal driving feature, is false. It's a calumny. It's something that I think hurts the polity, hurts kids. If could they Could you think-
2: say could you say though that race was the was a principal driving feature? Sure and that and, we our, do. and that our job now is to correct for that. That's our job now is argument. to repair the world is to, is to I, I like to quote Eric Liu of Citizen University who says that the project of America right now is to create Earth's first mass multiracial multiethnic multi-ethnic democracy.
0: And we've done that. We've done that. You know, sometimes you have to declare a victory at some point. Are we imperfect? Absolutely, but we are stressing the imperfections in a way that I think harms our true vision of what this country was, will be, it's, it's harmful to, I think, to our kids. Ibrahim Kendi, for example, fine, you know, he, he wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, mm-hmm. and the way he said it was that the cure for present discrimination is future discrimination. The cure for past discrimination is present discrimination. In other words, it's perpetual discrimination. I say the cure for those things is stop discriminating. I think, as opposed to Kendi, Martin Luther King Jr. got it right. Content of character versus color of skin. This means you treat history as it is. You don't embellish it, you don't necessarily uh, diminish the effect of history. Slavery was a horrible institution, but you also have to say that the United States of America was the only nation in the world to fight a civil war to stop slavery. There was a progression there. an imperfect but great country. Unfortunately, it seems that under critical race theory, 1619 Project, and some of the other iterations we're stressing the imperfections and claiming that's the true America. I reject that categorically.
2: The rule of law this is another question from our audience. The rule of law has perpetuated violence in the United States for centuries. In recent decades, the war on drugs created our system of mass incarceration. And the United States now has the highest per capita rate of incarcerated people, surpassing even non democratic regimes such as China and North Korea. What does this mean for democracy in the United States? Are you concerned that we have stripped the basic principles and privileges of democracy from our citizens at higher rates than any other nation?
0: Should we have another couple hours? Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I think that's above my pay grade. Although, again, on the Civil Rights Commission, of course, we look yeah, at this. But we do like have
2: a, like, the highest rate of mass incarceration per we capita in, yeah, the, in the world. Yeah, and that's sort of astonishing no for a nation that. that is devoted to freedom.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that bears deep scrutiny, and we're looking at it. There's no doubt about that. Um, that uh, really, we do need several hours to talk about that yeah. because this is an extremely difficult subject. One of the things we have to recognize is the United States is not like every other country. In other words, Are we exceptional?
2: T- are you saying there's sort of an exceptionalism about America? Well,
0: it's different. <laughs> yes. I, th- I do think we're exceptional. I think there's yes. you know, an irreducible feature of where we are today is America is exceptional. There's no doubt about that. It's the greatest nation in the history of the world. Imperfect. But the, the thing is, it's different we are a different country than even say Great Britain. We're a different country definitely than China. And when you take a look at comparing incarceration rates, we're not comparing apples to apples. I'm not justifying what our incarceration rate is. I'm not saying that there, isn't, there aren't things that can be done to reduce the incarceration rates. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying though that simply saying that because the incarceration rate in country A is lower than it is in the United States of America doesn't necessarily mean that's unjust. It may be some evidence of that, but not necessarily. There could be a whole host of other reasons, lots of moving parts as I indicated, that could result in that. That's why, again, this is way above my pay grade and we need a few more hours to talk about it. Okay.
2: Um, How do you feel about reparations? We'll need like another three hours after this.
0: Yeah, We will. Um, Look, how the heck? Well, let's be honest about this, who gets them? Who gets them? Does Barack Obama get them? No? Does Barack Obama, who has a white mother and a black father, does he get them? What about Kamala Harris, whose family owns slaves? Does she get them? Or does she pay a little bit to herself and then give the rest back? I mean, How do we do this in a way that doesn't exacerbate existing divisions? It's a nice thing to say, kind of in general fashion, that What if it exacerbates rest-
2: existing divisions in the short term, but overcomes them in the long run? Where's the evidence of that? I, I'm just, I'm you know, asking, hypothetically, well, what if?
0: Hypothetically, <laughs> l- let's, let's talk about this. The, we have spent, not in terms of reparations, but in terms of yeah. the Great Society and other programs, trillions of dollars, in the black community es- especially, mm-hmm. And we still have significant divides that need to be bridged in terms of socioeconomic uh, issues, educational issues. And paying reparations, you could look at it two ways. If I were in favor of reparations, Mm -hmm. one of the concerns I would have is, how does that make up for the the impact of slavery? How how do you quantify that? If you're against reparations, you're saying, okay, once the, the reparations are paid, then what? Mm-hmm. Okay, does that absolve everybody of, um, or who is non-white of any further culpability in disparities in this country? I, I just think that there's, how do you say there's a debtor race and a creditor race, especially when the current composition of the United States of America is largely the result of immigration since the 1870s? In other words, people who had no connection to slavery a majority of people having no connection to Jim Crow, and we're making a societal determination that a certain component of our country is somehow indebted to another component of our country. I think that's a toxic stew we want to avoid.
2: Peter Kirsten, now thank you so much for your time. I wish we had three times as much of it.
0: Thanks for all the questions, Dan. This it is was really a real ple- pleasure.
2: Thank you. Joe?
1: Thank you for joining us for our annual Law Day Forum featuring Peter Kersenau, a partner at the law firm of Benesh Friedlander, Copeland and Aronoff, and a member of the US Commission on Civil Rights. He was interviewed by City Club CEO, Dan Multhrop. thanks to the members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support the City Club's mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. They have two great conversations next week, on Tuesday, the Happy, Dog takes on the, uh, the Happy Dog Takes on the World Series will discuss the 10 years of war in Syria, and on Friday, the partners behind the launch of the Unite Ohio Network will discuss their work on addressing social determinants of health. You can find out more and see what else is coming up at city club, cityclub.org. And check out what you missed there, or on PBS Passport, Roku, Amazon Fire, Stick, Vimeo, and its YouTube channel. I'm Joe Gross. Thanks for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.
0: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland
2: Incorporated.